Hey, welcome to Proofing and Lies. This is a social science podcast about current events and delicious recipes. I'm Elle Rochford, a PhD candidate in sociology at Purdue University. I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. Each episode, we'll sift through the flour and the facts, bringing you tasty recipes and interesting topics. Today, since not much was happening this week, we thought we'd just talk about the weather. Actually, we're talking with Allison LaFleur. She's a PhD student in atmospheric sciences, and we're talking about severe storms. We thought we'd give you a break from electoral politics. What is, so uh, what's in front of us today? So, in honor of Allison, who studies raindrops, I decided to make the Japanese raindrop cake. So these are clear spheres. They're, well, really half spheres. Mm. They're kind of gelatinous. Um, I was really excited to make them. They're made with water and um, agar-agar, which is made from a red algae. They're served, um, they're like little globes, beautiful, glossy spheres Mm. that look, they're supposed to mimic dew. And then you serve them aside kind of crunchy, uh, I think, fermented soybeans and then a black syrup made from brown sugar. I decided for our kind of textural element and to sweeten it because the droplets themselves are very low calorie. They only have a couple calories for the whole dish. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's all the toppings that kind of make the flavor and the sweetness. So I made a caramel sesame seed brittle to give it a little texture and a little sweetness. Um, I'm really excited to hear what you think. I'm a little skeptical. Okay. So do I just like... Attack it. Okay. Go in. He's going in for the bite. We've got a crunch of caramel. It looks kind of like a clear jello. And it's supposed to just melt, like dissolve in your mouth. So I'm going in... For a bite with no caramel first. Okay. Okay. So it kind of tastes like nothing. (laughs) And uh, I can see how this would be. It's good with the caramel. It works with the caramel because it's it's like a jello. And then, you know, whatever you're eating with it gives it like 100% of the flavor. So like a bite of just the the cake is just a bite of like jello that like flavorless jello. Okay. Yeah. So I think I may have put... A little too much agar in there mm. because it's supposed to just like melt in your mouth like it's supposed yeah. to be almost like that cotton candy dissolve i am at a little bit of a disadvantage because i've never tried this made by someone else so right. i think it helps whenever you're making something to to know what the end result's supposed to be like right um but i will say i've been having a lot of fun lately making this caramel it's so it's a hard crunchy caramel um, which Andrew is now using as a little spoon to scoop up the gel. But uh, it's it's really as simple as melting down sugar. Um, and it can be tricky because uh, you can burn it. And this, this has gotten a little smokiness to it. Yeah. Which could be because I added the sesame seeds while, while the caramel was still hot. Or it could be that I left the caramel on too long. Um, I'm a total novice at caramel making. But it's been really fun. So I've been making and cracking caramel. It's an excellent stress reliever. Um, But it can be a little temperamental. Um, I think people hype it up a little too much. um, Because I was terrified to start making caramel. Um, And it hasn't been that hard. I think this is maybe the the worst batch I've made. And it's still pretty good. Yeah. 
No, this is good. I, I mean, I like the concept. Um, I can see why it's a thing. I mean, it's one of those, like, I'm trying to think of a good comparison. Um, I, like, I mean, like, like, it's like rice or like tofu or whatever, where yeah. like the additions really make it. Um, and I can see, like, it's a fun dessert, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, they're beautiful. They're very pretty. They're very, you know, fun to eat in, like, a jello-y kind mm-hmm. of way. I can, yeah, I can see, like, doing all sorts of fun side stuff, you know. A little bit. I can see a little bit of fruit. Yeah. Um, and I've seen people who will put, like, edible flowers in while it's setting. So you get, like, this beautiful oh, flower yeah, in the middle of this cool. glossy dome. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they are beautiful, and I'm sure there are tricks that I don't know about because I am not familiar with Japanese baking, but yeah, I mean, it's nice, and the so the caramel, the crunchy caramel is now melting down a little into the, the soft gel, yeah. which is going to be really nice. That's good, too. I was going to say, because a, a couple of the pieces kind of melted, and I was kind of nibbling at that, and then it, um, it's sort of infused with a little bit of caramel carameliness now, which I enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was good. So I would say for difficulty, other than finding a gar gar, which actually a lot of supermarkets carry now, this was like a one. It really it's like making jello where you just boil the water. And so finding the right ratio of water to a gar is a little tricky, but really that's it. Um it's just boiling the water and setting the agar. So really this is just um like 90% water, yeah. Um, which is why it looks like this beautiful little water droplet. Mm. Yeah, this is, it's pretty. I would make this again. I might try it with different kind of crunchy toppings, especially now that I know like what the texture will be. I was going to say, I think what would be fun is to make like a whole bunch of these. I think it would, one day when we're allowed to have parties again, yeah. it would be a good party food. I think you could make a bunch of these and do a bunch of different little toppings and stuff and let everybody kind of like, mix and match and play around with it. Yeah. I think that'd be, that'd be a fun little thing to do. Well, and it's like, it is, it's light and it's refreshing. I could see this like summer, like little bit of toasted nuts and some berries. Like, yeah. Yeah. it's really nice. I mean, I think it's like, it's so neutral and like kind of refreshing that I think you could do any, like literally any sort of flavor topping that you wanted to mm-hmm. you know, mess around with. Well, and I'm a vegetarian, so I haven't had Jello probably since I was a kid. Because mm-hmm. Jello, Jello has gelatin, and gelatin's not vegetarian. Right, it's not um, horse. Yeah, sorry, kid. Delicious, delicious horse. Uh, <laughs> but agar agar is totally vegan, so I've been using it in a lot of my different baking projects. I've been making a lot of um, custards and mousses lately. Mm. Um, so anytime I want something to set, instead of using gelatin, I've been using like just an itty bit of agar, or I think it's agar agar. Uh, and it, it's been really fun to work with. Um, so I would say, yeah, I would make this again. I think it's really easy. So maybe a one for difficulty. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's I mean, they themselves are not that, that like delicious in that they don't have much of a taste, but you know, you can you can attribute taste to them very easily. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's sort of fun. It's a fun vehicle. Yeah. And we'll post pictures on Instagram because it is, it really does look fun. I was a little nervous when I first took them out of the mold because it looked a bit um, like a contact. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it does. I mean, it's just this glossy little droplet. Here's a, a fun fact since we're in the age of the coronavirus. The other um, 
common usage for agar is that it's uh, what's in a petri dish. Oh. Yeah. Yep. I did not know that. Fun science fact. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the same. I mean, a petri dish is sort of the same little little thing. It's a you know just a suspended set of nutrients in the garden. So there you go. Well, and fun fact for our listeners, Andrew, in addition to being a lawyer and expert on the Balkans, it's uh, <laughs> also was a biochem major? Uh, yeah, well, biology, immunology specifically. But yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. useful now. Yeah. It's, I mean, I can explain stuff to people sometimes. I'm <laughs> not still an expert in that by any stretch. Well, Luckily, today we do have an expert. Yeah. So, yes, thank God. You may uh, have noticed, you may have noticed extreme flooding. You may have noticed hurricanes, tornadoes. We are increasingly getting worse and worse weather systems. And so, we thought we would talk to someone uh, who studies storms for a living. And, fun fact about Allison, I think I've known her for probably over a year now. And she doesn't lead with or even bring up the fact that she is a professional storm chaser. She's a brilliant scientist, but she chases storms. Like she does the thing, like gets in a van and chases extreme storms. And if that were me, that is how I would start every (laughs) every conversation. Like, hi, my name is Elle. I drive into tornadoes. Right. Oh, off the rip. Yeah. So... I mean, already she has blown me away with her humility. Uh-huh. And also, I mean, talk about an extreme job. And she's very, like, calm and collected about it, which, yeah. again, I would not be, which is why I'm not well-suited for this job. But we're going to talk to her about the work she does, the patterns she's been seeing, some of the fun adventures she's gotten up to chasing different storm systems. Um, and we talk about water droplets. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we had our raindrop cake. And we also talk a little bit about emergency preparedness, because uh, I am a huge dork, and I like to have my binder of safety tips. It's a fun one. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and we thought it would be a little palate cleanser from some of the heavier topics, although climate change is a bit I of a heavy say, topic. right. Yeah. Nothing to distract with. Right. Well, well enjoy. We're here with Allison LaFleur, and you're getting your PhD in atmospheric... Science. Sciences. Okay. I almost said atmospheric chemistry, but that is different. That is, yeah. That's, some people in my department do that, but not me. Okay. So, so essentially you do like really rigorous storm chasing, right? Yes. That's a part of my research. And then the rest of the year is analyzing all of that stuff. So you're, you're one of the people that like drives into tornadoes. Yes. Well, we try to stay away from them because our uh, equipment is a couple million dollars, but <laughs> we get really close. Well, that's cool. So uh, I wanted I wanted to ask, I, I did watch the, the videos um, that you sent us. What is all that stuff? <laughs> yeah, there was a mention of polarization or polarizing. Yeah, we were watching that and we were just like, ah, yes, dual polarization. <laughs> that, I know what that means for sure. But for the listeners who don't, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about the equipment you use? Yeah, so um, those videos, they were um, made by Raytheon. So we were, uh, Raytheon donated a radar um, um, to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. um, And we collaborate with them. So they are the engineers and they build the radars. And then we take the radars and use them for things. Um, And so the radar that we are using is dual polarized. So what that means is that scans the atmosphere um, in vertical orientation and horizontal. So basically, to sum it up, it's getting the shape of uh, 
raindrops and snow and whatever from two different orientations so we can then figure out how big the raindrops are, um, what their size and shape are. So it just gives us a lot more information. So does the size of the raindrop have to do with like the severity of the storm or what, what does that information tell you? It can tell you, yeah, about just what's going on in the storm. So if it's, um, so for example, if you see an area of hail, uh, which we can tell from this information, uh, you know that the storm's producing hail and it's strong enough to support the life cycle of a hailstone. Um, and so it has strong enough updrafts and downdrafts in the storm. Well, and so part of why um, we invited you on, number one, you're delightful. But number two, we've been seeing these really intense storm systems, like more of them and also bigger storms. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, is that something you've noticed in your work and what might be causing that? My work isn't specifically looking at climate, but I have some colleagues who are, um, and they're looking at kind of just the larger environment and whether that has been changing as uh, the earth has been warming, um, because it's pretty, no one is um, really looking at is climate change a thing anymore in the sciences because that's been well established for years. Um, so now people more focus on how different systems are changing. Um, severe weather is still a newer component of that just because they're such complex systems and we don't totally know how they all work already. Uh, but other severe storms like hurricanes and um, that environment that these storms grow in, we do have a better idea of how um, they're changing. Well, and so we're um, based in the Midwest, so I think it might be harder for like Midwesterners to appreciate just how severe some of these storms have been. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the hurricanes we've been seeing? Yeah, so the hurricanes um, we're seeing, we're not necessarily seeing more of them, but we're seeing them be more intense and they're also um, intensifying really quickly. I can think of a couple examples from this year where, you know, you had a storm that was a category one or two, and then by the time, like a day later, it had jumped up a couple categories already. And then they're just causing more intense flooding because, um, these storms just have more water in them. So they um, just dump more water over land, which then causes a lot of other things like flooding and all of that. I guess, yeah, I guess I'm surprised to hear there aren't more than normal because it feels like there's been like triple the amount, but is it just that we're hearing about them because they're more aggressive? That's definitely part of it. And this year has been, um, I don't know if it's passed the record yet, uh, if we've passed the 2005 year, but this year is one of the years with the most storms on record. So there's definitely been more this year, um, but in general, we haven't found it, like, at least to my knowledge, we haven't found the direct like link that there's more storms, but the storms are more intense, which means we will hear about them more because we don't hear about the storms that just blow through and cause a little bit of rain and wind. I was going to say, this is the first time, at least that I knew, we stopped naming them after yes. we went to Alpha and stuff. Um, so that's cool. I'm glad I know that. <laughs> so you said you aren't focused on climate, though, so much specifically. So what, what is your, your specific focus? Um, I'm looking at how, um, so I'm using this radar data, and I look at um, areas of large raindrops in severe thunderstorms, and I'm looking to see if there's a difference in the, like, intensity and size of these areas of large raindrops in tornadic and non-tornadic storms to then see if we can kind of get a better idea of which storms will produce a tornado and which won't. Which won't. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, because that's, uh, you know, that's one of the, um, I guess, the reasons that, that weather forecasting and weather data is so important, right, is, is the earlier you can find out what is going to produce a tornado or what's going to produce hail or something like that, you know, you can prevent people from dying, even, right? Like, 
Yes. So that's, I don't know. So that's really cool. So you can, you can hopefully find out the stuff from like really small information, right? Is the goal. Yeah. So there's already research out there that um, these areas of large drops will get like, there'll be more of these large drops that will get stronger um, ahead of a tornado forming, but we want to, it's a very qualitative uh, statement. So we want to get more specific so we can understand it better. So yeah, we can help. Uh, like a forecaster down the line would see this happening they can be like okay a tornado is likely forming and then they can get a warning out sooner so i'm curious i'm gonna bring up sharknado i'm curious what what do you see people getting wrong about weather all the time like what what kinds of things do you see or do you wish people knew so first i have not seen sharknado but (laughs) (laughs) i have seen other movies similar to it but i think the biggest thing is so i've seen twister and like with that one it's just like how the storm just appears and disappears and how it's um, it's very dramatized and also what systems like cause the most damage or what causes the most uh, trouble. So with hurricanes, for example, it's the flooding that tends to be the biggest impacts, not necessarily the rain or the wind in the moment. Um, or um, when it comes to like climate change, just that there's just the scientists don't understand what we actually understand. So there's a perception that we don't agree as much about what's going on in our atmosphere as we actually do understand. And then the other things is just how our weather models and climate models differ and how they work, which is something that is very confusing. So I don't blame them for not someone who's not in the field, not necessarily understanding that, or just how uh, accurate our forecasts can be now. Years ago, they weren't as accurate. Uh, we couldn't tell you as many days out what was going to happen. But now, especially with Peter models, we can get a much better forecast out there, as long as just forecasters have had more years of like leaning on what others have done and learning better understanding uh, the environments that they're specifically forecasting in. Okay, so there's a lot more agreement and a lot more kind of rigor than maybe people think? Yes. Yeah. So like one comment I would say almost every meteorologist has heard is you get paid to be wrong 50% of the time and that very much not true. Um, but our perception of what like a verified forecast or a good you know statement is can maybe differ than what the from what the public We'll see. So like, for example, um, if we say it's going to rain in central Indiana today and it rains, you know, 20 minutes south of where you live, we count that as, you know, it rained. We said it right. Um, But someone who didn't see the rain fall directly over them may be like, well, they're wrong. Well, and some of it is is statistics, right? Because if you say there's a 70% chance of rain, that means there's a 30% chance there won't be rain. Yeah, yep. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I feel like, too, it's like a confirmation bias thing, right? Like, you remember when the forecast is dramatically wrong, right? Like, you remember when it's supposed to be, like, 65 out and it snows. You don't remember (laughs) all the times it's supposed to be 65 out and it's, like, 64. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, right, you get the, like, ah, then nobody knows Yes. But like most of the time when it's supposed to be, you know, 65 and sunny, it's 65 and sunny. Yes, exactly. So I'm thinking about, so we have like this new better technology. We're better able to track storms. Um, are we better able at, at kind of predicting trends? Like, are you able to say what the storm systems will be like next year? That is still, I would say, I say we're better than we used to be, but that seasonal or year to year forecasting is still the area that I would say that we have the the most inaccurate, but I don't want to say it's inaccurate, um, but it's the most difficult to do. So no more almanacs? Yeah, they're, those are basically just sharing, from my understanding, I haven't looked in one since I was like a little kid, but they're showing like the climatological, so like what you would expect to happen on that day, which sometimes is, you know, fairly accurate because climate is 
climate for a reason. So in general, it will be ac- pretty close to accurate. Right. Like if you're if you're in Indiana, it's not a bold guess to say it'll probably be like 80 degrees in July. Yep, exactly. That's not really a shocking prediction if you're correct about it. Yeah. How do you how do you know when a storm starts and stops? Like what are the what are the boundaries of a storm or is it like a more blurred boundaries thing? So it definitely depends on what system you're looking at, but in general most have um at least for the National Weather Service, who puts out all of our warnings. They have pretty strict guidelines to what, like how fast the winds need to be blowing or the shape of the storm or how much rain is there for them to at least put out a warning. Uh, so that the thinking of like hurricanes, you know, they or tropical systems, the winds need to be on average, you know, above a certain number to be considered a tropical storm or a hurricane in the different categories. With thunderstorms, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, they need winds to be roughly a certain amount to, and then the storm needs to be doing like specific things and like organized enough for them to be like, yeah, this is a severe thunderstorm or this is, and that warrants, you know, putting out a warning and letting people know, or it's just some rain with a couple, you know, rumbles of thunder, something they'll keep an eye on, but you know, they don't need to put out a warning. But when it comes to like researchers, they tend to have their own, you know, guidelines like, oh, we want storms that kind of are doing this there producing hail and we want to study hail if someone is interested in that. I was on a project where we were interested in more tornadic storms, so we wouldn't necessarily go out for every thunderstorm, but if the storm looked like it was getting more severe and then it was starting to rotate um, in the upper levels, you'd be like, okay, we're going to go look at this one because it's doing most likely um, what we want to look at. So, I, so this is a, a, maybe a dumb question, but that sort of like severe thunderstorm is like an official category. Like that, yeah. like that's a, okay. Cause I, in my head, I don't know why I always just thought it was like sort of up to somebody's judgment, right? Like, yeah, this, like somebody's like literally looking out a window, like, oh, that one looks pretty bad. It's just, <laughs> we should tell people <laughs> So I appreciate the, the new. Yeah. They use um, a lot of radar to figure those out. But uh, with tornadoes, one of the ways we do verify like that a tornado is happening is still this, like we have a system of, or they have a system of storm spotters. So someone can call in and be like, I see a funnel cloud or I see a tornado on the ground. And so that is not a wrong way that they verify things. (laughs) I think it's one of those things where like, like I too am a victim of the like, I don't think about the science behind this that much. And right weather forecasting to me is just, you know, Dick Goddard's on TV or whatever. (laughs) And like, that's, I don't really think of him as like a scientist, you know, but of course it is science and I'm an idiot. (laughs) <laughs> um, but uh, but I did want to ask you about that. So the the storm chasing aspect of it is that are you guys like on call basically for the like if somebody's like you know oh I see a, a a funnel cloud like you said or whatever is that you know do you guys get the call and like go rush to the, the truck right yeah exactly do you, do you go suit up and go go chase it basically yeah so um, the way my uh, lab works is you know the last two weeks of May um, or the last week of May my advisor and uh, another professor are putting on a class. So that class we have a dedicated, like this week, we're going to be out in the field. But the rest of the season, it's very much, yeah, on call. Like, okay, we're, we want to go out tomorrow. Um, and normally we have a little more beat time than that. But right. uh, it's like, all right, we're going to go out next week, probably for two or three days. So make sure you're ready and you can rearrange things. Um, I'm lucky I do have an advisor who, if you had something significant, she won't be like, no, you can't go. But 
um, yeah, it's very much on call and very much just how dependent on the weather. I've been a part of big field programs, um, so it, which is just storm chasing, but with a lot of different schools and organizations doing it together. And those I've experienced a little more like once, I guess, for example, I was on one in Alabama, my second semester at Purdue. So there was one day we drove down, we did our stuff and we came back and then, you know, 12 hours later, like, all right, everyone back to Alabama uh, to chase some more storms. So those can sometimes be a little more, I don't want to say spontaneous, but last minute because there's a lot more to consider because you're talking about getting a lot of people into one spot um, and travel. So it's a mix of both. Um, sometimes, yeah, you can just be like, we're going to go these two weeks and whatever happens, happens. Or sometimes you're a little, you have a little more uh, leeway. So you do, I was going to ask, you know, you're not just in like the central Indiana area, right? You, you guys travel. Yeah. So I've gone everywhere from Texas up to Iowa and Colorado, Oklahoma, Kansas. And then, yeah, I was on a field project in Alabama. So we were down there for a while. Um, but we have chased in Indiana if there's something here, but normally uh, they're further west. Well, I was going to say that's so my parents' favorite part of the Midwest is how little severe weather we have here. So I feel like I've been very kind of isolated from severe storms, but other than hurricanes, are we seeing other severe weather events like our other areas? I mean, I guess we have uh, forest fires in, in California, and I don't know if that would be considered part of severe weather. It's definitely part, like meteorologists definitely talk about it and look at it. Um, and it is like a, a disaster that like um, NOAA would put out on their, like, they have a map that goes out every year of like billion dollar disasters. So it goes on that. So it's definitely considered a weather event, especially because weather is such a big factor to whether these fires occur. And we have been seeing definitely like an increase in extreme heat events or drought or flooding. Um, and those are also considered, you know, extreme weather events. You don't necessarily think of a drought as, you know, one singular event, but it is um, definitely causes impact. And that's the stuff we definitely have more of it, more confidence in saying like, oh yeah, these are happening more often and they're getting worse. And one thing that I remember so in undergrad, I was part of a group that we would go and talk about climate change in schools. And um, I went to a church once and we talked about climate change. And one thing I remember saying, one of the things we would always say um, is that, you know, we're seeing more extreme drought events followed by extreme rain events. And so just the way that rain is falling or where and when it's falling is changing and that kind of causes problems because humans, you know, we're in our spots and we, we adapted and, you know, built our societies around what we know but that's changing so it's going to cause problems is that water cycle or water like where the water is falling is changing when I remember um a couple years back I worked on like a water conservation project and I didn't fully understand that droughts and floodings have a very intertwined relationship so you're really likely to see both uh within the same time period because they're it has to do with like snow melts and rainfall, right? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Another part is like soil. So if you have really dry soil, it's not going to absorb water from rain as easily or it'll more likely to have like a landslide if you're on a hill or something because that soil just, yeah, is very dry. But yeah, it has to do with, yeah, the snow melt because if there's not as much snow, um, 
you could go into a drought or if there's more than normal you can then get when it starts melting you'll get a rush of water and there'll just be more around uh, i got a, a more uh, can can you tell us about your favorite storm chasing experience oh i have to pick one <laughs> well, uh, i guess I, well, if there's yeah a couple of good ones please yeah, I guess I have uh, two come to mind. So the first is the first year I was out chasing. I was actually, um, it was I was in undergrad and it was an internship with my um, undergrad professor and we were out and we, at that time, our focus was um, to just get videos of the storm. So we partnered with Oklahoma University and they had the radar and they were the ones out doing that, but we were gonna get videos of the storms and we can take that radar data and then the videos and like overlay the information to kind of get a better idea of what the tornado specifically is doing. So like what the actual wind speed is at that certain point in the video. And there's a whole lot of information you could get from that. Um, so I remember we had decided we were like, no, we're, we're sure there's gonna be tornadoes out at this spot um, in Texas. So we like went out and we were like, we're going. And we come over a hill, small hill at some point, and we just see a tornado in the distance. So we, you know, our professor was driving, he like whips the car over to the side and we're standing in the middle of like, a, you know, the, on the highways, those little like interchange things or where like, you know, the police cars will turn around and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, in the median, and so we just like hop out of the car and like get our cameras uh, all together. Um, and so that was the first time I saw a tornado, so that was pretty cool. And it was also like a pretty substantial one, but the I guess the nice thing was it was just over some fields, so like no one was getting hurt, nothing like it wasn't you know causing a ton of damage. Yeah, so you didn't like yeah watching it, you were like okay. No one's getting hurt. Nothing terrible is happening. <laughs> I've always heard that tornadoes are like really erratic. So, you, so I guess it would make me nervous to be within a sight line of it because can't they like jump or is that something that's made up by movies? Uh, so they, I wouldn't say they don't jump, but um, like you sometimes won't see them even though they're there. Like the, you know, the wind could be, you know, down on the surface, but it doesn't have debris. So you just don't see it momentarily or something. Um, but they do sometimes like they'll, the funnel will like touch down on the ground and then come up and then come down while it's kind of either forming or dissipating. So yeah, I guess that didn't occur to me is that if it's not picking up debris, there's nothing to, to really see. You can't really see high winds. Yeah. Well, sometimes you can see, um, there will be like a condensation funnel. So a cloud funnel. So you will see that. So it just, yeah, it depends on the storm. New things to worry about. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess tornadoes aren't subtle. You would have some indication that one was coming. Yeah, and we um, we stay, you know, a mile or two away out, you know, where we're chasing, it's flat forever. So you can see pretty far. Um, that's why I always, so I grew up in New England and I went to school in Vermont. So people would occasionally go storm chasing out there. And I'm like, how are you doing this? There's trees and hills everywhere. Like, you can't see anything. Um, so that's one, yeah, that's the benefit of being out in the West is, yeah, you can see very far, so you can stay far enough away from these storms, especially with like if um, when we're doing using just the radar, sometimes we can't see the storm we're scanning because we could be far enough away from it. We always try to get within visual sight because then you just get better data, but sometimes you aren't. So the second one um, was when I was on that field project in Alabama. So we were out there and with that, since we were on uh, part of a bigger team, we didn't choose where we parked our 
like the radar and scanned it was like this team goes to this spot this team goes to this spot so we can you know make sure to surround the storms with um information and so we were sitting and we're watching the storm get closer and closer to us it wasn't tornadic but it was pretty severe and had some hail and we're like should we leave and we were like talking to my advisor who happened to um had just had a baby so she wasn't with us so we were just like grad students by ourselves um you know we're in this car and we're talking to like all the scientists on the project like should we move and everyone's like no i think you're okay um and we were just like watching we're like well we trust them and we know we'll probably be okay like there's not a tornado so it's okay but we got to like be hit by a pretty strong storm uh so we're just sitting in the car with the hail falling on us, which is something that, you know, I'm sure many people have experienced, but I, again, I grew up in the Northeast. You don't really get that crazy of storms. And in general, we we're not chasing. You try to avoid the hail because it can damage the instruments and the cars. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was, yeah, kind of cool to just sit in a truck for, you know, five minutes while you're getting pelted with hail and lightning everywhere. Um, but I remember we were all just like, what do we do? It's like midnight. <laughs> do we leave? Do we drive away? <laughs> Well, that's actually that that's good um, good segue. What what should you do if you're caught in a severe storm? Uh, so you definitely uh, one common thing you hear is to go under an underpass. You don't want to do that if there's a tornado because that's actually not a safe space. Uh, in general, you want to if you can get inside as soon as possible. Otherwise, you want to get to a really low-lying area, but make sure you have an escape. You can get out. I think that's one thing when we go storm chasing is to just be aware of your surroundings and um, always try to make sure you have at least two escape routes in case one of them gets blocked by a storm or a downed tree or something. But yeah, if you're caught and there's not a tornado, stay in your car, I believe is fairly safe. Don't drive through floodwaters. But if there is a tornado, yeah, just getting somewhere, you know, low that you can get kind of out of the way and then away from any, you know, large debris. Well, I think that's um, that's also something I'm interested in is we're kind of projected to see huge amounts of flooding and and more storms kind of close severe storms closer together what what do you think and maybe this is outside of your research but what do you think people should do to prepare for storm systems that are going to be more intense i think the first thing is to kind of listen to your local national weather service office Uh, most of them will put out you know the information ahead of time so that you well they all will put out the information ahead of time (laughs) so you can prepare um and then they all I believe have suggestions for what you should have in like little emergency kits or um if you know you're going to be in an area that's going to start seeing more flooding how can you you know safeguard your house or where you live or what sort of plans you need to put together for example I have family in Florida so they you know have a plan for when a hurricane comes or they have a kit together because they know they're in an area that sees hurricanes so if a specific event is increasing around where you live, kind of just knowing what that will be and preparing for it and not just always winging it, which I mean, I've definitely been guilty of doing. (laughs) I guess an example of that is like my family where we grew up, I don't have like weather information on this. This is just like an observation that we had from living there. Um, We had a really bad ice storm one year and we lost power for seven days. And then you know, a couple of years later, we had a really bad snowstorm and we lost power for a couple of days. So we noticed that this trend, or we just noticed we were losing power a lot more often. Um, again, I don't know if that was weather changing or our power company or just, uh, there could have been many factors to that. 
but we were like, okay, this is happening. How can we prepare for when this does happen? So we got, you know, a generator and then had made sure we had ways to charge our electronics with no well, power. I'll say with generators and this information has been circulating as more flooding um, incidents have happened. Some generators are not safe for indoor use. So there's been an uptick in carbon monoxide deaths. So that's also, you know, listener beware, right? Yes. Make sure you know, yeah, it's, it's great to have a generator on hand, but be sure you know what kind of generator it is. This is this message brought to you by the ad account. <laughs> I just have a very safety oriented family and we have like binders of emergency preparedness. <laughs> I do not. Uh, yeah, so I. See me on the highway. He'll be under the underpass. <laughs> <right now. laughs> I did. I read. I learned because that would be definitely my instinct. And so I guess. I think it's most people's like it's a covering. Let me go under right. here. Thank you for helping yeah. me not be crushed by a highway. <laughs> well, and this is maybe maybe you'll have a better strategy than this. Is I have a lot of friends in apartments. Um, many of whom aren't from the Midwest, and so they were asking me during the tornado warning, you know, what are you supposed to do if you don't have a basement? And what I've always been told is, like, most injuries from tornadoes come from debris, and so you should get, like, a mattress and be in, like, a closet or a windowless room or in your bathtub with the mattress on top. Is there yeah. a better system than that? No, that's pretty... Um... You want to get into like an interior room as interior interior as you can. Uh, yeah, if there's no windows, that's good. Um, and the mattress thing, yeah, to just kind of protect yourself if debris does fall. Um, but yeah, if possible, the best thing is to get as low as you can in the house. Um, I remember my first year here, I was in an apartment and we all like went, like we heard the sirens and I looked and I was like, oh, a storm is coming. So we went down to like the laundry room because it was on the bottom floor. Wow. But yeah, interior room. <laughs> that was uh, during my first, when I had my first rental uh, situation, we had a severe storm warning. We went down to the basement and the basement was filled with rusty like tools and it like buckets, buckets rusty nails and like all this like scrap metal. And I just like looked around and I was like, this is the worst <laughs> be if there's any kind of debris issue yeah so maybe check out your basements and your your Um, this is i'm coming off as so paranoid i think no i think it's good to be prepared especially yeah i know i wasn't used to tornadoes i'd never heard a tornado siren until i came out here really yeah it's so background noise to me they don't have them where i'm from We, we don't really get tornadoes I mean, we get them, but nowhere near the frequency. Or just, I mean, we, yeah, we are barely a tornado area, right? Like, yeah, lands. we're just on the edge because we're, we're in the northeast. Okay. So I, I guess I wanted to, to ask, is there, is there anything else or like any big thing, you know, for, for your average person, what should you know about the weather, the weather coming up? <laughs> I guess, or, you know, about severe storms or about the research that you do? I think the biggest thing is to yeah, just pay attention and have, if it's a day that there's going to be storms or you, the weather um, meteorologist on TV or your phone even tells you, oh, you sh- there's a potential for severe weather today. Just looking into, you know, what is it going to be? Is it going to be tornadoes? Is it going to be just, or is it going to be severe storms with hail? Or is it going to be a wind event? Um, just so you're aware and you can just have that in the back of your mind. So if you notice something, 
you see a dark storm in the distance or you feel the wind picking up and you're like, maybe I shouldn't go on this walk right now. Just so you yeah, are aware. And then just knowing what sort of extreme weather happens where you live um, so you can better prepare for it. And again, as those extreme events are changing, as our climate is changing, just being aware of what those potential changes in your area are so you know what to anticipate in the future. Yeah. And just uh, another thing is to know that, you know, the meteorologists you see on TV are likely scientists with degrees. Um, I know that's something, perception that people still have sometimes is that they're not um, people with degrees. But a chunk of my undergrad was people who went on to TV and are now on TV. Um, and they did, you know, all the physics and the calculus that the rest of us did, too. <laughs> So it's so interesting because I feel like you kind of expect the anchors have a degree in journalism, but even that, like maybe, maybe not. But I think most news segments, right, you don't think of them as people with advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I never considered that, yeah, our meteorologists to be like knowledgeable. I thought the qualifications were like, be good on TV, have a stick. But, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, and I think. I don't know this for sure, but I believe, you know, previously, like years ago, they didn't always have degrees. They were someone who, yeah, was more good in front of the camera. Um, but now it's getting more competitive and those meteorologists are actually doing their own own forecast. So in order to now have that job, you need to be able to forecast the weather. Right. Um, that was so funny because uh, last night when we were talking to my parents about doing this episode, my dad goes, well, don't meteorologists if just get like a, an email packet from some kind of national group of scientists? Yeah, so now um, that I believe that's not the case and they're making their own, at least my friends, and from what I understand of that, no, that's not the case anymore. I believe it used, I don't know why, but I believe it's what it used to be for some people, but now it's very much, yeah, you put out your own forecast and that's why, you know, you see it slightly different between stations. At least I specifically think of snowfall forecasts, you know, they'll be, you know, an inch different station to station you're watching. But yeah, they're doing it themselves. And I think part of it is just more competitive. And uh, I believe, you know, maybe cost is different. So the stations won't have to pay for someone to forecast if they have people on site who can do it for themselves. Yeah. But yeah, my, I know like my undergrad, those students, they got their degree in meteorology and then also took a bunch of classes. Some of them minored in our like electronic journalism arts program. So they got both of those kind of education. Well, that's, yeah. you got anything else? I just did, I did want to ask, because this is something I hear about every once in a while. And I remember really vividly when it did happen. What is a polar vortex and how do they work? <laughs> Because I'm very concerned that we're going to have another one because uh, it was miserable the one time we did have it. Yeah, so a polar vortex is just, um, they, we've known about them for years. They've been around for years. Normally what it is, it's just an area of like the cold air. Normally that's over the Arctic. And sometimes that, you know, area will break free and come further south. So that's what it is. Um, there is a polar vortex that's in the stratosphere. That I believe is something different or they're related, um, but that's not the one you hear about in the news. What you hear about in the news is just like that area of cold air um, that normally is, you know, contained up at the pole kind of coming further south. Um, there is a sign that those will become more frequent with climate change. Um, because <laughs> so the jet stream, I believe, um, is looking to, you know, get more like the it's going to the amplitudes are going to get higher so you know the 
high part of it will go up further north and it'll dip further south. And there's like some uh, research that shows that. So the chance of these polar vortex, you know, coming further south are increasing. And that's one thing I, I know, yeah, is that you're going to see more temperature extremes. So there might be days of more cold weather with climate change as well, which is counterintuitive. You're thinking, oh, the earth is warming. We're just going to see more warm weather and more warm things, but it's much more complicated than that. Well, that's what I was going to say, because I remember when the constantly from people on the internet or like, oh, where's, yeah, we thought, they thought it was global warming. I thought it was supposed to be global warming, but look how cold it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you get that all the time. Or like if it snows and like last year it snowed in October here and you're like, you got those comments. And it's like, actually, this is a sign like this just weird different weather potentially is a sign of global warming. Right. Well, and I think that's that's part of the big push to stop referring it to like global warming and start talking about climate change. Right. Yes. That's where that, that branding rebranding came from. Well, yes, exactly. It's like it shouldn't be an extreme weather event when it snows in October in Ohio or Indiana. That used to just happen sometime. You know, I remember Halloween's as a kid that were it was snowing on, and now it's you never see it. It's really rare. So yeah, <laughs> what I heard, and maybe maybe you know more about this, but I heard someone say that there was like part of global warming was like there was a period of relative stability in like the 2000, 2010, there was like a pause. Is that anything you've heard about? Cause it didn't, I didn't understand it. Yeah. I, I remember hearing about it. There's a site I love called um, skeptical science and we used it in undergrad and it, um, you can like type in these like myths about climate change and it'll tell you like the actual science behind but yeah, so I do remember hearing about this pause and it didn't, I'm trying to think, I can't remember what it referred to, whether it referred to like the you know average temperature each year wasn't increasing as much as it had been, or if we just saw some like different, there wasn't as many extreme weather events, especially because I was a kid when this was all happening, but it didn't pause. I know like global warming has been happening, um, especially when you look at like, uh, we mentioned it's like statistical. So over the statistical average, like it was still warming. I think the rate maybe went down. Again, I can't remember off the top of my head. Well, and so much of um, what I hear about, especially, again, being based in the Midwest, is because we personally aren't having that many severe effects. People don't take, I think, the severity as seriously. Because, um, like, oh, yeah, it's, we're getting some more extreme events, but, like, we're not seeing the, like, 130-degree days. You know, we're not seeing the flooding. Right. So I know it feels paused for some of us because our, our lives haven't really changed much. Yeah, and that's something when we would go um, talk to like schools and stuff is we'd be like, just because you don't notice it doesn't mean it's not happening. So like climate change is the whole climate system. So you may not notice anything specific. It could be, you know, your area was actually colder this year, but, you know, on average, the earth was warmer or your area was normal this like the average this year but in general um, the whole earth was warmer or different and yeah we you may not see specific your area may not see increased extreme events but you know globally we're seeing more of them more that sort of thing that was one of the like things we'd say when people were like well it was cold here today or it snowed here today is it's like okay our specific area could be seeing this change but globally it's a different change 
Um, but yeah, it's definitely hard. Like when we talk about sea level rise, when you're talking to people who are not from a coastal state, they're like, well, we're not seeing that change. Is it actually happening? And it's like, it is, and it will eventually affect you at some point. Right. right. It just may not be right away. Well, I wondered, um, as someone who started out studying social media like six years ago, I've noticed in my work, like all of a sudden, my area went from something like most people didn't really care that much about, to now it's like everywhere everyone's talking about it. I imagine what you do is, is similar, where in the last couple of years, everyone seems to have an opinion about the work you do. So I wondered, what's that like? How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um... So I remember even when I started school, I, people didn't really ask about it or they would just like, if I mentioned climate change, they would like mention Al Gore and that would be about it. And, uh, but now people are definitely more interested and I think it's partially because it's been talked about more. And then there's been these more extreme events happening. And I think that people really start to notice or think this is something they need to pay attention to when like they keep seeing these events happening to either them or loved ones or in their country um they're like oh this isn't some abstract concept that I can push out of my head it's it's real and I need to think about it um I think there's also been a big push from the scientific community to like talk about it and get the information out there more because before traditionally I know a lot of scientists you know they did their science and they went into science because they didn't want to be talking to people. They went into academia because they didn't want to be, you know, on TV or they didn't want to be the ones out there talking. So now there's been a push, you know, bridge that gap. And part of that is with social scientists and how to communicate better and um, get that information out there. Thank you so much. Yeah, this thank you. really fascinating. Well, before we go, is there, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> is there any, uh, you know, to, whether it's your own research or, or something important in your field? Skeptical Science, it's just a good resource um, we would use in, in undergrad. Um, it is a website and you like, it has the common myths about climate change. So like um, their top 10 one is the, like the climate's changed before, so it doesn't make a difference. And the reason I like it is you like click on one of the myths and then it like gives you, you most of them you can choose like a basic explanation or intermediate or expert. Um, it'll explain to you the science behind the myth and it links to those scientific papers. So you can, if you really want to know, you can go into those journals um, and see. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is if you want information, like try to find good sources and, you know, NOAA and find the scientists who, you know, are talking about it. Is there, so NOAA is the national. Is there an international? Yeah, so there's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC. Um, and they put out reports every seven years, um, and they put out a lot of, you know, videos and stuff about climate and weather. And then, yeah, if you want your, you know, local weather information, just go to your local National Weather Service website. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Really nice. We learned so much, and I feel like I'm going to get you a safety kit. <laughs> well, thank you. It was very nice to meet you. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.